Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. I kind of like that people mistakenly name them and some apples have their own like regional names. Mm -hmm. It feels like an interesting intersection between like plant and human, like this idea of like storytelling and how like we all have like, you know, local legends and different stories in our localities. This is Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. If you'd call yourself a fruit person, you'll eat this episode up. William Mullen is a photographer and marketing manager whose book Odd Apples documents the stunning, strange world of heirloom apple varietals. His love of fruit extends to caring for urban apple trees in South Brooklyn and brewing his own cider. Clearly, there's a lot to discuss. It's so fun to have William on the show to nerd out on fall fruit, wine harvest, and more. William Mullen, this is Taste. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, Eliza. How you doing? I'm feeling good. Yeah, is fall like your Super Bowl? I mean, I actually really like August a lot, and but I would say September is as perfect as one can get because like I'm still eating watermelon, I'm still making tomato sandwiches, I'm also eating apples. Like I'm getting a little bit of that late summer, I'm getting a little bit of early fall. I'm still swimming in the ocean. Seasonal overlap. Yeah. Yeah. I let the record state that William showed up to the studio with a huge bag that has a watermelon in it and also some apples that I had never tried in my life before, which just feels like a very on-brand way for you to travel. Uh, yeah, it is. I, I, the watermelon has become a bit of a thing for me, which is kind of crazy to carry around so much. You you often are carrying around an entire watermelon? I um, Every time I go see my boyfriend Ryan in New Hampshire, I like to bring up, at least around this time of year, a watermelon because I like... I, watermelon is kind of like a, it's like a sexy romantic food to eat with someone, like the juices and stuff. So, and I, I, I love watermelon so much. I feel like I hold on to it till it's like just gone, like removed from the market. So if I see it at the green market, I'm absolutely getting it. Oh, I love um, that. It's like a better than a bouquet of roses. It's definitely tastier. Tastier than a bouquet of roses. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so you and I met because. I don't know, actually, I think you're the only person I've ever done this to before where I just lit into your DMs on Instagram and I was like, I, please, I want to hang out with you. Specifically, please take me to all of like the urban apple trees that you care for in Brooklyn. Um, like, I just wanted to see all of that. And I think back so fondly to that day that we just kind of walked around Carroll Gardens, that part of like kind of South Brooklyn, and you showed me all these different apple trees that you were involved in the stewardship of. So I'm wondering like how how everyone's doing? How has the flock grown? How are the apples coming in? Yeah, those trees, like one of them has a pretty bad case of fire blight, which is a disease that attacks. It's like a bacterial. Um, so yeah, it is kind of sad. There's like a couple that are doing pretty well. And this is a, a good year for urban fruit. It would have been a really good year for all of New England because there was a beautiful, huge bloom. There was also a really bad late frost that pretty much decimated most of the fruit crops in the northeast of New England, also the Georgia peaches. Um, so, but luckily it didn't drop as low here in the city. This was like in May, I think it was like 26 in parts of New England where I think it got to like the 40s in New York. So those trees are doing great aside from the fire blight, which, you know, it could decimate one of those trees. It could spread. It, you know, I've kind of been like, I'm really happy to have gotten to like picked these trees and like seen them while they're alive because I feel like in the next like 10 years, they might not be there. Why? Because of climate change? For, I mean, a fire blight will eventually like kill the entire tree. It's a, a big problem for orchards. And a lot of people will have like spraying programs and stuff 
to, um, I guess, mitigate it or treat it, like you literally spray like an antibiotic on the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of it seems really obvious, but it is like literally like a bacterial infection the same way that like we get infected with bacteria. There's even like antibiotic resistant fire blight. Oh, my God, because they're not finishing their courses just like us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. So is that going to be contained to that tree or is there a risk of that fire blight kind of spreading through the tree community? So far. So if you remember, there's four of them in that parking lot in Red Hook. Yeah. um, By the Liberty Warehouse and Valentino Pier. Um, The other three, I think, are fine. Um, Just one of them has a pretty bad case of it. Um, And I noticed it must have been like last year that it just kind of came through the city there's a couple other trees that i've picked before that also have it mm-hmm. um but since then i've discovered more apple trees so yeah like there, there's a couple in dumbo in the um there's like that on-ramp park when you get onto the manhattan bridge it's like that green space there's two beautiful huge apple trees there um i'm not sure what they are maybe like a golden delicious type do you think it's the kind of thing with fruit trees in the city where once you become aware of them, you start to just notice them more often? Yeah, I was thinking like, I've said before, it feels like a sixth sense, but then I was like, okay, well, wait, I'm using my sight, which is literally one of the five senses. So <laughs> I feel like it's more just like, you know how like they say that like, if you like, maybe if you removed people from like our urban environments, like our civilized worlds, we would pick up on all these senses that other animals have. I wonder if it's just like a thing where once you see it, you see all of them, like your, you know, your sight is attuned to it and like even your peripheries kind of like pick it up, your peripheral vision. I feel like I saw the first one in Carroll Gardens. There was, um, I was like on a run and there were just like some apples that had fallen on the sidewalk. And this was like late, late or early August of like 2018. And I just looked up and I saw this apple tree in somebody's yard and I was like, wow, okay, of course, yeah. Why wouldn't an apple tree grow here? You don't really think that they could survive or like produce what was a really hefty crop on that tree. And then I tasted one and I was like, this is amazing. Um, I pretty much deduced it was a Gravenstein by the way it looked and how ripe it was for that time of year. Gravenstein is a Danish cultivar from the 17th century that was, like, heavily planted throughout Sonoma County, California. And then, like, a lot of it was used to actually feed soldiers in World War II, um, like, with applesauce and apple, like, dried slices. It's not very common in New York. I feel like New England has, like, Macintosh and um, Macown. Mm -hmm. But, like, Gravenstein... There's, like, a whole festival for it in California. Um, Whoa. It's great for baking. It has, like, a good sweet tart flavor. It doesn't keep very well. There's a little bit of a spice note to it. But this apple had, like, the classic, like, green coat with red, like, tiger stripes and was, like, ripe in August. So it's, like, I've never sent it in for genetic testing, but I'm, like, 90% sure it's a Gravenstein apple. Right. Um, And I think maybe that sounds funny the concept of sending it in for genetic testing but i think if you are aware of the heirloom apple varietal world that's a real thing that that you can do right you can do and, and you know the guy uh i yeah i think his name's cameron peace okay um i might have that wrong but and i think it's like three or four hundred dollars per apple so it's not Whoa. it gets expensive so what's the use case for somebody doing that I think there's there are a lot of apples that have been mis-id'd um so like there's a couple cultivars in Maine that are, like, all one cultivar, and that's Duchess of Oldenburg. And, like, they all have, like, different names. Like, one is called Nutting Bumpus, <laughs> which is really funny. Uh, but it's really Duchess of Oldenburg. And there's, like, lots of examples like that. I can't think of any others at the top of my head. But, um, you know, it's said that there are over 7,000 different cultivars of apples. And that very well may be true but i think that there's a lot of overlap and even if the number is like three thousand or four thousand that's still pretty incredible um but it seems like a lot but why would somebody go to like spend hundreds of dollars to genetic test an apple that is a really good question i guess if you really want to get it right and you want to know like maybe your 
selling scion wood to like craft um you probably want to be correct about the cultivar but that is an interesting question because like i don't know i could get myself in trouble here but it's like if you're selling an apple with like a slightly different name from its original name but it has like all these flavor qualities and aesthetic qualities that like someone wants when they graft and want to grow an apple tree like i don't know how I guess it matters for history and tracing lineage and finding things out. So maybe that was a bit silly of me to say, but yeah, I kind of like that people mistakenly name them and some apples have their own like regional names. Mm -hmm. It feels like an interesting intersection between like plant and human, like this idea of like storytelling and how like we all have like, you know, local legends and different stories in our localities and, um, I like that. And I also, you know, apples are grown all over the world, but they do feel like a very American fruit and they're tied up in the history of this country and the way that it was settled and like different civilizations like grew up. And so like even you talking about the Gravenstein before, like I didn't know any of that history. But knowing that, I think, brings a new depth into what we're eating now. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, Malice Domestica, which is the eating apple, basically was um came to be in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan in the Tian Shan Mountains. Basically through like years and years of like birds and bears and then later horses like selecting larger fruit and then later humans and then, you know, they spread the seeds through their poop. Uh and sorry, like laughing so childish. Um, <laughs> but uh and then, you know, they were cultivated in Europe a lot, but From what I've read, it was, like, a mixture of things. One is that Europe had a lot of, like, set farmland by then, so they didn't sort of go crazy there, though still some of the best apples are from Europe. Um, And then when the colonists brought seeds over, you know, and they just, like, planted seeds, so all these new apple cultivars just grew. So anytime you plant an apple seed you're going to get a new apple tree you'll have um some genes from the seed parent and then some genes from the pollinator parent so like you know pollinator like bee or butterfly brought some pollen to that apple blossom um and so you have a new apple with um some traits from mom some traits from dad just like us um and because of both like the open landscape and like the specific climate in North America, like the amount of like cool hours and the seasons, like apples just like took off here and like exploded in a way that um, I guess was kind of unprecedented for the cultivar outside of its native lands. Mm. Um, my friend Benford recently just um, found some research about how there's another gene or there's another species from the Malus genus called Malus coronaria that is native to North America. So maybe it's also just kind of like malice finding like another home. Yeah. Like the species like does know this climate in this soil somewhere like, you know, thousands and probably like millions of years ago. Um, Yeah. Wow. That's kind of beautiful. I I didn't know about that. They've been around for a long time. Right. You know, it's interesting because I grew up on the West Coast and apple culture, I don't think, was as prevalent then, especially growing up in that era. There was kind of like Granny Smith, Red Delicious, and that was it. Um, When did you like fall in love with eating apples? What was your childhood with apples like? So for most of my life, probably, yeah, just eating normal apples. And then when I moved, I guess normal, LOL, what does that mean? But uh, <laughs> Justice. When, <laughs> when uh, I uh, lived in the UK from like 2002 to 2008, um, when I was like in middle school and high school, um, and I started cooking for myself, which we will not get into, um, but... I started grocery shopping for myself, like, with my money that I made from being, like, a hairdresser's assistant and a movie theater custodian. And I got really curious about different foods. Basically, okay, long story short, I wanted to cook salmon. And well, I wanted to eat salmon. My mom didn't want to cook it. So I was like, I'm going to cook. Oh, my God. And so I started going to the 
uh, waitress near me, which was like honestly someone making like my like five pound an hour like wage should not have been going to waitress because it's like so, so expensive. expensive. But it's just like what we had on the high street. So, um, and you know they had all the classic um, commercial apples there, like Pink Lady. Like we ate a lot of Pink Ladies, um, Granny Smith, and then they had this one bin. Um, of like brown, rusty, potatoy looking apples. Like I would say, it looked like a gold sprayed potato called Egermont Russet. And I was like, that is such a British name. And also, that apple looks like a potato. And, you know, being, I knew that Waitrose was like a specialty kind of upscale grocery store. So everything in there, there was a certain level of quality. So I was like, let's get it. Like, you know, it could be great. It's probably really good. Um, and I bought a bunch and I ate one on the way home and it, it tasted like, like it had been slow baked in the sun. It was like incredible. It was like, like nutty and tasted like rich, like warm, like Michigan cider. Like you ever had warm apple cider? Mm, Yes. Uh, and it had like chestnut notes and spice notes and it was, the texture was like, it was definitely a little drier than like a really juicy apple, like honey crisp, but I really liked that about it. And I was like, what on earth? Like, where did this come from? And so I went home and I Googled Egermont Russet. And I was led to this website called Orange Pippin, which is like this huge online database of apples. And like what I pictured to be a bunch of old British guys, like rating apples, which was really funny. And from there, I just would, like, read about apples, and I tried a few more, like the Cox Orange Pippin that I brought in, um, Bramley Seedling. Um, But from there, like, I was, you know, still a teenager, and my access was limited. Um, And I was, like, pretty happy to just, like, eat Eckermont Russet and read about a couple apples. But it was, like, my favorite thing to do. Uh, You're, like, my dream child. That's the cutest (laughs) thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And then when I I went to college in California and I in Orange County, um, which was not a great place for finding apples. But wow. when I moved to L.A. for a year after college to work, I found um, Pink Pearl um, at a co-op, which is an apple bred by this man called Albert Eder, who was German but moved to, um, like, Humboldt County, California in, like, the late 19th century and was experimenting with strawberries and different flowers. I think it was dahlias. I could be wrong about that. Um, In fact, some of his strawberry work, like, he, like, crossed, like, wild um, coastal Pacific strawberries from, like, Chile with mountain strawberries from Europe, if I'm not mistaken. And those genes are still, like, really um, present in, like, modern cultivars. Um, And then he was, like, obsessed with red flesh apples and creating a red flesh apple that would be popular and kind of take over and go to market. And, um, you know, none of them really blew up. Um, There was, like, 30 of them. and the one that's really famous is Pink Pearl. And um, I'm not really sure what it's a cross of. Um, there could be some French apple genetics in it. And there's definitely some genetics of an apple called Surprise, which is a German pink flesh apple. Hmm. Um, and anyway, so I I found, I found got that at the co-op and it was pink inside. And I was like... This reminds me of Marie Antoinette, the movie by Sofia Coppola. Such like, a good movie. Because, like, we think it was, like, that, the pink of, like, the font that mm. she uses in that film. And it felt like, you know, the way that she uses music, like, the strokes and New Order in that movie. It's, like, anachronistic with the setting. And then she's, like, throwing Converse into one of the shots, too. I was like, this feels like that, like anachronistic. Like we think of apples like wholesome farmhouse fall, you know. Um, but this apple was like lemony and tasted like strawberry champagne. It was like neon pink inside, you know. I was like, this is like L.A. This is like cool. Like, And so that got me obsessed again with apples. So I was like researching Albert Eder and 
Um, I moved to New York, so I was like, need to figure out my life. Um, and be closer <laughs> to apples. And and yeah, I knew I had no plan when I moved here, but I was like, I want to get involved with either chocolate, apples, or dairy. And I actually kind of did all those things. I worked for a yogurt maker, which we'll get into later because it coincides with one of your questions. Uh, like, um, which question? <laughs> my, my, my answer to the food thing might be a little weird. Okay, but, we'll, come uh, back, we'll come back to it. But, um, but now you work in chocolate. Now I work in chocolate. and um, Which can you just say for the record, I guess, what you do in chocolate? I am the brand director for Rocka Chocolate. Um, a great, delicious chocolate. Maker down in Red Hook. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I moved to New York and, um, you know, for a little while I wasn't really um, actively getting into apples more than just going to the farmer's markets and, you know, tr- just trying all the cultivars that I could and reading about them. And um, kind of back to the Pink Pearl again, I was eating a Pink Pearl like in 2018 and I had learned product photography for Raka. Um, and so I was kind of like looking at a lot of product photography. And if you remember around that time on like Instagram, it was like a lot of like really bright poppy stuff. Like that's what was in. And so I was seeing a lot of that. So I just kept seeing the pink pearl, like on this, like kind of poppy backdrop, um, but kind of like in a surreal way. And I was like, maybe that would be an interesting photo. Maybe I should take that photo. I at least want to see what it looks like. So I just went and took that photo. And I was like, wow, that looks cool. And I had fun doing that. Like really like just simple impulse. It wasn't that deep at the beginning. Um, And from there, I just got, I was like, well, this is actually a really cool way to look at apples. Like typically they're depicted in more of like a, a rustic kind of aesthetic in photos and um i just thought well it'd be really interesting like to make portraits of apples that are like less driven by like the season and the time of year that we eat apples and more driven by like the character of each apple um right so and you know photography like i'm not a trained photographer really um but it was the right medium for that because, you know, some of these apples are pink inside, some of them are red, some are like totally cylindrical, like a candle, or some are shaped like stars. Some look like potatoes. Some look like potatoes, some are like jet black. And so I was like, you know, you could paint these apples, but you can do anything in a painting, right? That's what's so beautiful about painting. It's like pure imagination and then like style and technique where a photograph like I mean, you can Photoshop and stuff, but generally the the concept of photography is that what you're looking at is actually real. Maybe right. you've, you know, manufactured the, what's in the frame a little bit, but like it is supposed to represent some kind of reality. So, so that's how the photo project began, which turned into the book Odd Apples, yeah, which is such a beautiful book. Thank you. Um, and I imagine that tracking down all of those different, as we're saying, strange and unusual apple cultivars must have been. A difficult feat and I'm curious if there were any like did you have the holy grail for the book that was especially hard or important to track down yeah um there was probably two one was a pietois which is a swiss apple that is like small and related to the you know lady apples those little mm-hmm. I don't know how they're related but um I yeah um they're both like the same size and I think they're both like there's something about the lady apple that's related to a pietois I'm blanking on it, but it's shaped like a star, like literally, wow. like it's so cute and it's, it's biannual. So it doesn't crop every year and it's, it it's crazy. It'll like literally last, like not in the fridge for like months. It's insane. It's like such a good keeper. Wow. Um, like how you're lowering your voice to tell me that as if it's a, a big secret. I, it's like, um, so how did you find that one? That's actually so random. I had been searching for it and literally a really good friend of mine, Emma, she texted me like she was like, thought of you. And it was like a photo of those apples. She was at a, a farm stand for Montgomery Place Orchards, which is upstate um, near like Red Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, Red Hook upstate, which is interesting because we're talking about Red Hook City as well. Um, and I was like, oh, my God. 
like I will pay you whatever if you can like get those in a box and send them to me right now. Uh, I've been looking for those apples. Um, so that was coincidentally she found them and sent them a picture to you. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Crazy. What's the other one? Um, really anything from the Albert Edder orchard. So Albert Edder had like a big homestead orchard where. He grew all of the different cultivars that he liked and was experimenting with. So dozens of different red flesh cultivars, but also just like some other really interesting eating apples. A really popular cider apple from Albert Edder is called Wixen. And it's this really high acid, high sugar crab apple that tastes like like a salty kiss on the Pacific. Like mm. it's like it's so good. Um, and just like kind of classically Californian. Um and uh, basically, this orchard had come into, I think, ownership by a family called the Fishmans, who I think that's the name. It was Ram Fishman, who I was like calling and emailing. They were ignoring me. And I, who is this guy? <laughs> I sent them a copy of the first Odd Apples book that um, Andrea uh, Trabuco Campos and I published like on our own um, before the Haja Khan's one. Um, and basically they like didn't respond. Then I called them and I was like, hi, did you get my book? And like um, his wife answered the phone and like he wouldn't talk to me. And I was I was actually so pissed. I made them send the book back to me. It's so petty. But I was like, I know you should if they don't want it. I was like, OK, well, whatever. <laughs> send, <laughs> <And> it <back. laughs> send it back to me. Um, and they did. And it was like in such bad condition. Anyways, um, so basically by through like I forget how I came into contact with this guy Tom Hart who um I think owns Humboldt Cider Company or is involved in that in some way Tom if I'm getting that wrong I'm sorry uh and you're listening but he um I think contacted a friend of mine Sean and Sean was like I know you really want these Edder apples like Tom like is going to the homestead orchard and documenting and restoring there and let's send him a box. So we both we split these like wholesale fruit chippers, which are these little foam things that you can like put fruit in so they like stay like, you know, safe in a USPS flat rate chip box. Um I have so much of them. Um, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I didn't know existed, but of course it exists. And of course, you're intimately aware of this by now. Yeah, hard to get because you have to buy them wholesale. So you got to be ready to have like a hundreds. lot. Yeah. Luckily, you probably are going through them. Oh, yeah. I'm actually in a shortage right now. Okay. Um, Keep an eye out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so Tom sent us a bunch of these Albert Edder cultivars that. Um, you know, I feel like no one really has tasted. Like, yeah. they don't even have names. Some of them just have numbers. And some of them made it into odd apples. And they're all, like, you know, different variations of, like, pink flesh stuff or different, like, Wixen-related apples. So, like, really kind of, like, salty, acidic, sweet crab apples. Like, really beautiful fruit with incredible flavors that, you know, like, who knows? Like, they might never see the light of day after this like if they if the trees die and they're not propagated and named like um yeah it's like i feel like to be obsessed with apples like this is to be obsessed with like history as well a little bit i was um, gonna say i'm curious if, if you were to generalize like what are the overarching qualities of the apple people that exist out there that you are kind of in virtual and sometimes physical community with definitely like all walks of life um, but I would say the the one binding thing is like obsession that is almost like related to solving puzzles, um, like a finding this obscure apple that you read about in a book that was propagated and then like, you know, ceased to be documented or was, you know, fell out of popularity for whatever reason. And then like how to go through records to find like where the remains of that tree might be or anyone who might still have it um so it's a lot of like detective work and going through like old records um and then from there it's like i guess like you know like things that connect a lot of people who get obsessed with different foods like just like a flavor thing like it's i've had apples that taste like red bell peppers and olives i'd have one that tastes like licorice one that tastes like strawberry champagne like wow it's pretty crazy how many flavors can be in just one species of fruit 
It's really cool. And I think as you're talking, I find myself thinking about what apples have that allow them to be kind of fascinated upon in this way that other fruits don't. And it's kind of their hardiness, right? That like you can be sending apples through the mail to somebody else and that they can have a long shelf life because, you know, like peaches, I think, are another fruit that is kind of um, held up very dearly by people and that people kind of fetishize, oh, like the first summer peach in the same way that people that like fall think about apples or apple cider. Uh, but peaches like obviously are so fragile and like can't really be kind of investigated at length in that way. Does yeah, that resonate for you? Definitely. It's I mean, a lot of, you know, the apples we eat are shaped by that like commodity capitalism, like what stores well? What can go on a um, railroad across the country in the 1800s? Exactly. Um, so, you know, like the thing about Cosmic Crisp, like that new apple that came out a couple years ago is that it like can stay fresh for a year. And there's a couple apples that have really long shelf lives, at least when they're kept cool, like Black Oxford is, um, which is an apple that has, that's like pure black on the outside. Sometimes it's more like just like a really dark burgundy, but um it's from Maine, and it's nicknamed the July apple because if you pick it in November or December and you keep it in the fridge, you can have one in July, and it'll still be good. And That's I've actually crazy. confirmed this, and it is true. This is like a, my family for Passover every year. We keep the box of matzah from the previous year, and then we do a taste test to see if it's gotten any stale, and like we can never tell the difference because wow. it's inher- inherently just such a dry thing. That's you know? cool. It's kind of a joke, but, you know, it's I a like real thing it. we do. <laughs> um. And you, the point about peaches is really good because, like, you know, some fruits that grow really well here, like native persimmon, um, you know, you, you can't commoditize that because, like, A, it's when it's ripe, it's like like a soft, saggy orange soda cloud or, like, it's, like, really, like— you know, it's going to drop from the tree and it's going to splat. Like, it's you can't chip it or anything like that. And it's a bummer. I mean, maybe it's not a bummer. It's just what keeps it, like, not widely known, I yeah. think. But it's, like, so delicious. And even though I love apples, I do want to say that native persimmon is, like, the perfect fall fruit. It tastes like pumpkin pie. It's crazy. Wow. Okay. I appreciate you shining a light on, on other fruits also. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk to you about like wine harvest and, and other fruit things as well. But I guess one more thing on the apple note is I'm curious, like commodity shipment aside, if you could nominate one or two apples that you would love to see get kind of that shining recognition that Honeycrisp, for example, has gotten, what would they be? So I would say in general, any russeted apple. Russeting is so interesting to me. So I mentioned Egremont russet earlier. Um, Which, as, can you just describe what russeting is? Yeah. So it's like basically that like rusty coat on the skin like that you see on, I think it's Bosque pear has russeting and then obviously russeted potatoes. It's um, almost like scabby kind of to use it. Maybe that's a gross word. It's but. definitely, yeah. And it's thick. Like yeah. it makes the skin tougher. Yeah. Basically, um, it's interesting to me that we accept it in pears and not in apples at the commodity grocery supermarket level. But um, there's apples like Golden Russet and Roxbury Russet, which are native to New York and Massachusetts, respectively. And um, basically, russeting happens when, A, the apple needs to have, like, the genetic trait to express it. And then after that, it's, like, damage to the outer layer of the skin that happens to the apple while it's growing from, you know, little baby apple to to big apple. And that can be anything from like rain to like other weather atmospheric related conditions. And then so, um, you know, the apple, the tree tries to repair the apple and then there's water loss from that skin damage. So then the tree starts sending all these metabolites into the fruit, like extra, more than usual. So it's pumping it with more like flavor, basically. Mm. And then that water loss also makes for like a concentration of flavor. So russet apples sometimes tend to be drier as well. So... Um, they just have more flavor intensity. Now, I mean, the skin is like, if you don't like skins, you might like never get into that because like they are tougher. Mm-hmm. You can always peel them off though and still like the, the flesh is really tasty. Like knob rusted is one that looks like a toad and it like looks like warty and like crazy. The skin is like tree bark. It's very tough, but the flavor is like, like orange creamsicle and like nutty and citrus. It's like, 
so good or it tastes like like a like you glazed a chestnut with like orange glaze it's so Yum. tasty and like i think what i've heard is that because of that water loss um there are some storage issues with frosted apples but i'm going to be real i've stored them i feel like they last for quite a bit uh maybe not as long as cosmic crisp but you know in new york you can get rusted apples at the green market but still like not everywhere like they're not that popular they're not as popular as something like a macintosh and there's different rusted apples in different localities there's lots of great european russets we have quite a few in new england um, is some of it a cosmetic thing that people don't want to try it because it looks a little banged up I think it's both cosmetic, storage. It's like all those things working against it in, in the commodity world. Okay, so we're rooting for russet apples yeah. is the takeaway. Okay, I love to hear that. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the work you've been doing with Wine Harvest because based on what I've been seeing on Instagram, you're kind of getting out of the city most weekends to be like out in the field. So what are you up to? Yeah, so um, I guess I sort of became like wine adjacent through the Odd Apples photo project because I was meeting a lot of cider and winemakers. Um, and um, in 2021, um, I met this dashing man named Ryan Williams who, uh, yeah, we just, I guess we just vibed and we've been together for almost three years now. And he is a winemaker in New Hampshire. He's from Massachusetts, but um, he's been making wine in New Hampshire for a couple of years now um, with this guy, Nico Kimberly, and their, the label is called NOK, and it stands for Not Otherwise Known. Um, and they farm six different vineyards throughout New Hampshire that are mostly um, hybrid grapes, so stuff that grows really well in cold weather. And they're hybrids of um, Vitis riparia and Vitis labrusca, and those are two grapes that are native to North America. Um, so most of the wine that we drink is from Vitis vinifera, which is the European grape. And um, But North America has their their own grapes. Um, there's also Vitis rotundifolio, which is muscadine, which is native to the south. Um, and uh, so things like Concord grape, that's Vitis labrusca. And a lot of Vitis labrusca grapes have that kind of Concord grape flavor, that Ooh. muskiness. I kind of think Manischewitz might be one of the only Concord grape wines I've had before, which is maybe not the best expression of the fruit. <laughs> M- maybe not, um, but maybe still tasty. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the nostalgia of it alone. You yeah. Know? I mean, the there's a couple of people who've done some great stuff. There's um, uh, Topeka, which is Pascaline uh, Le Peltier, who's a, hopefully I'm not butchering the, her name. Um, she's uh owner of Chambers Restaurant or partner in Chambers Restaurant um, in Lower Manhattan. And she's also a sommelier. I think she's master sommelier. Um, and she collaborated with um, Nathan Kendall, who's a winemaker in the Finger Lakes. And they focus on mostly um, like native grapes and hybrids of native grapes. Mm-hmm. So Catawba and Delaware and Concord. And they made a nouveau style wine with Concord. That is really tasty. Uh, and I have a couple of friends who are who are making wines with Concord that are pretty tasty. That's so cool. So have you what harvest is this for you? Have you done harvest before? Uh yeah. This is this will be my third year with Grape Harvest. Okay. So um, coming back on Grape Harvest for the third year, like is there any knowledge from the previous two years that you're bringing in or that you're trying to get out of like this new time? I'm mostly like kind of absorbing uh Right now, I haven't, like, made my own cuvee of wine. Ryan and I are making a red flesh cider together. Um, that's a Solera style, so it's been a couple of years that we've been working on that and harvesting each year and pressing and fermenting. So what's, like, the goal and flavor for that cider going to be? Ooh, that's a good question. Last time we tasted it, it had, like, um, sort of like a lemon saffron kind of flavor, mm-hmm. which was really interesting. Um, we have more apples that we're going to be pressing, and I think we're going to bottle it as a pet nat. So we'll see what it does, but bright and kind of herbaceous and, like, red fruity. Um, Do you have a name for it yet? I think we're going to call it William's Kiss because my first name is William and his last name is Williams. So we're going to, like, kiss the labels. And this is <laughs> like so bright cute. And I'm going to collapse. How, uh, many, how many bottles are you making? I'm not—I think we're— 
hovering around like 80 bottles with the pet nat. So I'm reserving one right now. Yeah, there'll definitely be one for you. And I think we're, I'm not sure how we're going to move it yet, but, but we definitely want people to have it. Um, cause it's, it's shaping up to be good. I have made another cider before with those Brooklyn trees that we went to that I will admit on this podcast turned out atrocious. So I'm not really sure what to do with it because I didn't dump it. I, Can you make vinegar? I think I might have to. It's at my friend Benford's house. and uh, I think you should make vinegar. I think having a house-made vinegar is really cute. Um, yeah. And also you'll have to reduce it down, right? I think so. Basically, so that'll help get rid of some of it also. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. It was a huge learning lesson for me. It was in, it was like I had like 10 gallons of juice in a 15-gallon demijohn. There was too much oxygen, and they were low-acid, low-tannin dessert fruit, which, um, you know, don't have a lot of protective qualities in the ferment, so it, it got mousy, basically. Oh. Um, and so now I'm like so paranoid about mouse, which for listeners don't know is a flaw that you— we'll find in wine sometime um it's basically a bacteria um and uh i like yeah and it gives it that kind of like uh rodenty smell or taste corn chips corn chips yeah okay let's not ruin corn chips for me actually yeah (laughs) i I like fritos (laughs) but you're but when are you gonna bottle this current cider you're working on um probably sometime this fall um we have some apples that we'll be adding to it and pressing, and then we'll top it up, and um, we'll kiss some some paper and make a little label. Oh, I love that so much. I'm excited to see that finished cider and hopefully get to try it. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the work that you do with Raka as well, because I think that, like, chocolate is such a fascinating ingredient and, like, product to have a close look on. I guess I'm curious, like, what you're working on right now and also if you've ever done something that kind of hits on the collab of apple and chocolate yeah it's funny because they i feel like as my identities like my rock of work identity and my apple photographer identity are pretty separate yeah um like i've never like collabed with Raka as me i mostly stay pretty behind the scenes at Raka. Uh-huh. um like i've I've never put myself on the Rocket Instagram, for example. Um, Keep, you know, think, something separate. Yeah, I think I like to be a little more private, I guess, like that. Um, but uh, but my interest in both of them, I, I think, is, like, very similar. Like, I've always, not always, pretty recent to, like, my adult years, like, when I was, like, 18 and beyond, found chocolate, like, really fascinating because it's, like like, wine and cheese and stuff. It's, like pure pleasure right there is some nutrition in it because it is a fruit seed so you know it's not bereft of nutrition and nutrients antioxidants Um, antioxidants magnesium fiber theobromine yeah theobromine um some even say it's a health food uh (laughs) but uh you know so it's like this fruit seed that we ferment we dry and then we remove the shell we grind it mix it with sugar uh, we refine it down to a smooth particle size, and then we temper it to make the crystal structure even so it forms this confection bar that is shiny and snaps. And in the meantime, we've coaxed, like, all these flavors that were that were there. All the precursors were there. And this, like, collaboration with microbes and our machines and our creativity, like, makes this beautiful pleasurable magical food so there's that really exciting like human creativity side right like no other animal does this um it's like you know bats have sonar but like we can make chocolate um so it's like (laughs) we each have our own things um but and then on the flip like you know cacao is from south america and was you know consumed by south american peoples and Mexican people for a long time or different tribes in Mexico um, and was, you know, brought to Europe by the Spanish and then was like made into confections by the English and other European cultures and commodified and essentially homogenized, like made into like a consumer packaged good product, was planted all over Europe. Most of the cacao that we eat in chocolate and that goes into chocolate products is many has grown in Africa now, mm-hmm. where it's not from, and it's grown as commodity and not specialty. Like you know, the flavor of its region is not as important, which um, 
you know, is a bummer. Um, and so it's like, it's on one hand, you have like the magic creativity side of it. And on the other hand, you have, you know, to look at the history of chocolate is to really look at the history of like, you know, colonialism, capitalism, um, commodity markets, commodification of things. Like it's like both like what's beautiful and dark about our species. Like you can see human capability through chocolate. Um, and I always found that really fascinating when I love to eat chocolate and, you know, it's like a, you know, a pretty, I feel like the broken supply chain thing, like broken, it was like, it's working the way it was intended to, right? It's just like bad for a lot of people. And a lot of us are trying to make that work. Um, so with apples, it's very similar, right? Like there are thousands of different apples and there are apples that are better in certain localities than others. Um, and yet, like, because of commodity commodity markets and capitalism and supermarkets and just, like, the way that we built our lives, it's, you know, it's we just only know of, like, 12. Uh, yeah. And we have, like, they all have very specific flavor characteristics that are kind of narrow. Um, so... Meanwhile, like people make beautiful ciders and apples are growing on their own just fine. And um, so it's two sides of things that I I just find really fascinating. Yeah, I think that you speak so beautifully and like connect some of these points well about the way that um, we get our food and have gotten our food historically and like what those systems and structures allow us to have access to in different ways. And I think it's interesting to think about that. because we can have so much information and knowledge and also so little at the same time about where things are actually coming from. And I guess like looking into the fall, are you working on any Apple things? Do you have any events that people should know about? Yeah. So um, my friend Matt Kaminsky, um, who is Gnarly Pippins on Instagram. So if people don't know what a Pippin is, it's basically is like a it's another name for like a, a seedling mm-hmm. um, apple, which is an apple that's grown without human intervention. So seed was planted from bird poop or whatever and then grew a tree on its own um matt has been hosting these wild apple exhibitions in massachusetts for the last i guess four years now and basically what it is people send wild apples that they found and like maybe pick or just know about in their localities from all over the country and we catalog them and you know, describe them and rate them and take photos of them. And then we release a little zine. And the idea is that, you know, we're looking for what's growing on its own without human intervention. So stuff that's going to prove to be resilient, you know, and here's where there's like, like we mentioned, like a crazy late frost, like what survived from the wild trees this year? Or like, you know, as the climate changes, what's still doing well, what's showing disease resistance? And also like, we're getting more interesting flavors. You know, we're getting some bitter flavors, great for cider. We're getting some sweet flavors. Um, you know, the, most apples that we eat now are from, like, breeding programs. And that's really great. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, they're cross-pollinating, but they have very specific agendas that they're trying to get out, right? Like, Cosmic Crisp was like, let's make another Honey Crisp and let's get the storage even longer. That's There's nothing wrong with that, I think. Some people might come for me for that. But I think commodity apples have their place. Um, But I think it's also important to, like, watch what malice the species is doing on its own as well because that's really important. And, like, the story of, like, our relationship with this plant is both this collaboration where we're cross-pollinating and we're grafting and we're propagating, but also what this plant is doing on its own and how it's figuring out how to live and propagate itself. So the seedling exhibition is a way of documenting those and sharing those um because otherwise that isn't really happening so um so where and when will it be so i i forget the exact date it's so it, we, it's can like, put it, we can put it in the show notes yeah r- what time of year roughly it'll be i think first week of november okay. it's in western massachusetts um and go to the gnarly pippins instagram i guess to find it yeah at gnarly pippins cool um matt is a super cool guy um, well, I hope I can come. 
you should come. It's really fun. And then we all go to the Dirty Truth afterwards in Northampton, which I'll give a little shout out, has like the best French fries in America. Well, I'm going to have to go there with you. Um, and listeners will put that in the show notes as well. And to close our episode, you know, this is taste. We're talking about your personal taste. So I have a little kind of like taste check for you. Just rapid fire. I'll give you a category and you can tell me what comes to mind. Cool. Okay, cool. Okay. Take a breath. <laughs> um, go to bodega snack. So um, a Diet Coke and a can of olives. <laughs> it's a really good combination that I feel like more people should do. There's nothing wrong with canned olives. Um, if people have something against them, check yourself. Okay. Uh, and I'm a big Diet Coke fan. I've recently let it back into my life after not having it for years because my mom drank it a lot growing up and she stopped and I was like this woman has been through a lot of her life and she's quit I can absolutely like sign of weakness if I give in but then I realized I had like built this story up like it would unleash some kind of demon in me or something like my whole life would just catapult into disaster if I had a Diet Coke and recently in March I was like Bill shut up get a Diet Coke and I got a Diet Coke and I have to say I'm a better person Oh, my God. Well, that's the opposite of a rapid-fire answer, but (laughs) you took us on a journey, so I'm going to go get a Diet Coke. Okay, go to bagel order. So I'm celiac, so this is a hard one, but literally any bagel, because if there's a bagel at the bodega or the bagel shop that I can eat, I'm getting it. Gluten-free bagel. Yeah, and honestly, just, like, it would be amazing. Cream cheese, butter, Mm. uh, or, like, a yogi egg would be sick. Okay. Uh, Favorite cookbook? Uh, probably something no threats, salt, acid, fat, heat. Salt, it just fat, like acid, taught heat. me actually how to think about making food. Love it. Favorite New York City restaurant? Shanghai Happing, uh, in Chinatown. So good. So many amazing soups. And also the jellyfish slaps. Mm. Favorite farmer's market in New York? It's gotta be, oh, it's so hard. It's higher Union Square, which is like, because uh, everybody goes there, but also shout out to my Carroll Gardens Market uh, on Sundays that does have some great apples from Fishkill um, that I do love. Mm. So got to give them some love. Favorite local apple? Favorite local apple from New York. Or like you could do the region. I guess it's got to be Golden Russet from here. So it's New York born and bred apple. Just classic. And you can get it at, if you're in New York, Locust Grove has it, who's at Union Square Wednesdays and Saturdays, I think. So Mascot has some, who's there on Fridays. And then Fishkill has some. They have Pick Your Own. They're just outside of Beacon. Um, and they'll bring it to the Cal Gardens Market on Sundays. Cool. Um, restaurant that you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant? So... A dirty truth, as we just mentioned, the French fries. But in New York, I got to be honest, I love Bonnie's. Mm. I love the fish, the like stuffed trout. It's so good. I think about it a lot, to be honest. Cool. So I'm going to say Bonnie's. Okay. And lastly, what's a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat? Okay. So first I would say anything in Marie Antoinette, but I will say my one weird thing I realized that I did obsess over maybe a little more than the beautiful pastries in that movie is uh, weird yogurts that people eat. There's a movie called Swimming Pool with Charlotte Rampling where she's like a bored writer in France. And for some reason, despite having a lot of time, she like chooses to just go buy this huge tub of, like, probiotic French yogurt and just, like, dumps it into a bowl and eats it. And I love, like, really tart Bulgarian-style yogurts. And so I remember watching that movie and just seeing her eat that yogurt and just, like, eat a huge tub of it. And I was like, yeah, that's me. I can literally eat a huge tub like that. I've never seen this represented anywhere else. I could eat a huge tub of yogurt and be totally satisfied. So I have to reveal like my inner freak like that because I think about it a lot. There's no other way to end than that kind of reveal. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. So we're here with our producer, Clayton Gumber. What's up, Clayton? How you doing? Hey, man. It's good. It's good to have you on the mic. You know, you've been, you've literally listened to every episode because you edit the episodes. I do. 
but you're also in the studio a bit, and we are uh, we have a big topic that we've been kind of kicking around off mic, and we we're like, let's just let it rip. Let's actually turn on the mics and talk about this big topic. So what do you what do you have right now? So uh, we're going to talk about grocery store sandwiches. So not deli sandwiches, not. I go and I ask for ham and I ask for cheese and they put it together in front of me. The ones that come in the plastic and not even bodegas because we live in New York City. I'm talking grocery stores. I'm talking Wegmans. I'm talking Trader Joe's. I'm talking Morton Williams. <laughs> what a name, Morton Williams. Right? It's like not a paint store. Just it's, so it's, you know. No, it's not. <laughs> but I find myself going to grocery stores pretty often and buying these sandwiches more often than I would like to admit, when we have such a breadth of other options. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why I do it. I think one of the things is there's too many options. It's almost that thing where you're like, okay, I know this is going to be something prepackaged. It's going to be so easy. There's anonymity to it. You can just grab it and go. And I wanted to know what your thoughts were, Matt and Eliza, because you're the professionals. You're the ones who know all the spots, all the great places to eat. And <laughs> why am I going to a grocery store to get sandwiches when I have so many other options? You you pose a question, the grocery store sandwich. Eliza, have you ever had one? Clayton, I have a clarifying question if you're up for it. Oh, of course. Are you going to the grocery store, getting your groceries for the week, and then getting a sandwich because you're hungry? Or are you going to the grocery store and only buying a sandwich? That, the second one. I'll go I'll go to say the Wegmans that is down by the Brooklyn Navy Yard and I'll buy a sandwich there. Wait, and that's because, it. Because you're in the area or you're I'm going in the area. out of the way. Because wow. I'm in the area and I'll go and I'll grab that and I won't do any more grocery shopping other than that. Oh my god. Do you have a therapist? Can we bring your therapist yeah, it's, on? Yeah, it's dark. I mean, it, this is dark, but it, there's there's light with with darkness, and I think the light is us kind of figuring out why you're doing this. And I think ultimately you are finding um, comfort in the availability of a hoagie that isn't being really marketed, which I think maybe you're turned off by like Subway and 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 big mics um, or Jersey mics. Sorry, big mics is a Madison, Wisconsin that no one knows. Jersey mics. You're, you're like these are anonymous. What what are you ordering? Also, oh, so it's not even an order. You just grab. So yeah, the, what are you buying? The what are you one, grabbing and going. Yeah, yeah, the one that I get at Wegmans is their uh, ultimate BLT, and it is almost. It's like thirteen dollars and fifty cents, which is way too much to pay for a prepackaged sandwich. I feel like this segment should be called food therapist. Yeah. I honestly I love to psychoanalyze people. So no, I think this, this is, should be we're onto something. A, you know how some podcasts you can call in and ask for help. You yeah. call us and we just tell you about your problems, but we don't solve it for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we just kinda like talk about the psyche here. What what do you think, Eliza? What do you what is your assessment? I don't know. It's just it's so different than I don't I'm not a big sandwich person. I don't really like deli meat specifically, so that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't often buy this kind of sandwich. I've definitely have had my share of like pret prepackaged sandwiches when I was working in an office or something yeah. like that, but I don't really live close to any of these grocery stores that we're talking about, so I think I would have to be going out of my way unless I was just around them, but even if so, like I've never been to a Wegmans in my life. Like I just don't so contextually, I am on the opposite end. I, I like a pre-made sandwich. And I think the Pret was my, is my New York go-to. And I think when they did the halves, which I think was nice, like having like just one half of a sandwich. A soup sandwich combo. Yeah, I would always like get a half and then something else, like a, a brownie or a fruit or something like a salad. But also, and I have to recognize this, this is a part of Japanese convenience store culture, these pre-made sandwiches. And man, see, these are the sandwiches you're going to get at the kombini. Um, in Korea, it has them as well. But I mean, there's a real culture that you're going to get grab and go sandwiches. But those products, I mean, they're, they're much better than like a standard um, grocery store. But I think you, Clayton, are talking about Wegmans, which we've talked about on the show. That is a tremendous grocery store. Oh, yeah. It's huge. I mean, the one down in Brooklyn. And I know there, there's going to be one in Manhattan where it's that came. It's open already. It already, okay. It's well, open. I know where I'm going tonight. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there is something about grocery stores that I really love. But, I, you know, I used to live in Hawaii, and the reason I mention that is that I used to go on my lunch break to 7-Eleven. Yeah. 
and I'd get Spam Musubi. I'd get two Spam Musubis, and they were a dollar each. So good. And that was my lunch. And I think there's a culture there. Like if you, if I told you that I went to 7-Eleven for lunch today, you'd say, uh, why would you do that? But in Hawaii, you go yeah. to 7-Eleven, there's so many of those options. Yeah. And so I feel like that's more respectable than me skewing all other options and going to a grocery store to buy prepackaged sandwich. So is there is there a way for those sandwiches to be at the level of you know, food that is, I don't want to say like court square grocer because that's like a made to order sort of sandwich and that's mm-hmm. elevated. But where does it fit? Is it like, because Eliza, it feels like to me, and I don't want to, you know, put words in your mouth, but it's like one of the lowest options of all options. It's just not convenient to me. This is what okay. I'm really hung up on is that when you go to the grocery store, even if you're in the express checkout line, most people are buying a bunch of things and you have to wait in line versus uh-huh. going to a Pret or, you know, Tenichi Mart that has the Masubi to go. Like to me, there are so many quicker options if you're doing a grab and go that I just can't fathom like why going to the grocery store even is in the equation for you. Like I would never think about that because there's just so many people in the grocery store, but I, clearly you and I are different people. And that's kind of amazing that like there's this whole lunch culture that I'm not even aware of, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Wegmans is their self-checkout. Mm-hmm. See, I don't even know. I've yeah. never been to a Wegmans. <laughs> oh man, you're missing. You're missing. Which I don't necessarily agree with because I do think it takes jobs. I think those jobs are important. I think seeing a face in a grocery store when you check out is super important uh, just to like humanize workers. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I do understand the convenience of it and I do use it. So I might be a hypocrite there. But uh, that's why. And it's it's on my because I'll do a long walk and it's kind of on my pathway. So it is ah, like a, a dip and go. We're so getting into this is a habitual act. I think that there's a little bit yeah. of that happening. Let me ask you a couple of questions. First, when you buy this sandwich, are you literally buying nothing else? Because I think there's a real value when you walk into a grocery store, you know, you're going to get a BLT for $14. But then you could get some dried fruit. You could get a, a, a uh, a Sanzo uh, or any kind of oh uh, yeah, I'm out of toilet paper. I need to get more. You can get you can pick things up that you're not going to get at a Jersey Mike's. You know, Jersey Mike's is going to give you one sandwich, and so it's almost like an efficiency is built into getting that sandwich at the grocery store. And the second question: Don't you find these sandwiches to be fucking dry? Because that's my biggest problem with any grocery store sandwich: they're cold and they're dry. Yes, the dryness is an issue because I think they know that condiments can be divisive and so they're sparing with it I agree because they're not going to go full in on your mustards or your mayonnaises but because that's because you're at the grocery store so you could just go over the next aisle and buy your mustard and put it on yourself can you imagine that this ritual will become you buying this sandwich but then literally going and buying a condiment to go every time so by the time you're on your, like, your 65th visit you're gonna have 65 different condiments in your fridge I, I think chili crisp would be great just to have around personally yeah I mean I think that is then when it becomes a serious issue that that I have to see more actual professional. Not that you are not the food therapist. <laughs> um, you have no licensing. Yes, absolutely. I, well, yeah, yeah, but I do think, and also, uh, you know, another aspect of this too is that I I enjoy grocery stores. I enjoy the act of shopping at grocery stores. I I like being in grocery stores. So I think that's also a thing. It's a definitely a, a, a warm hug. I think when you walk in, you have like a really nice lighting. There's like maybe free samples. You get to like kind of interact with people in a very passive way. It doesn't have to be aggressive. It's not like you're on the subway. You're in like kind of an inviting place. Depends yeah. on the grocery store though. If you go to like Food Town, like they don't yeah. have any free samples or any of those yeah. things, really. Um, they do have the sandwiches, I guess. Yeah. My ShopRite doesn't do too many free samples either. It's a good point. It's not always out there. But there's something about, like, just having that um, that those large swath of, of, of products available just to look at. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that, like, my diagnosis so far is just that it already fits into the fabric of your life. Um, and you're, you're walking right by it. You've already had it before. And you know what to expect. Maybe. My diagnosis, delicious. Nice. Simpsons line, just saying. Great. I love it. So, Eliza, will you go out of your way to try a grocery store sandwich now, or is it not for you? I feel like if I'm at the grocery store and I need lunch, maybe I will get the sandwich just so I can text you and let you know what (laughs) I think about it. But I don't think I'm going to go out of my way to get the grocery sandwich for lunch just because I normally don't want a sandwich for lunch in the first place. 
I must say, I'm gonna as a code as like a postscript to this conversation because I think we've we've really we've tapped into some 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 issues here. And then Clayton, we'll have you back for a, a diagnosis. I like this is kind of going to be a r- r- ongoing bit. Now, as you said, or maybe it was Clayton, you said that this was maybe the lower rung of of pre-made sandwiches. I put that in Eliza's mouth. That's she didn't okay. say it, but yeah. I know Eliza. I yeah. object. I'm not here to categorize lower right. upper rungs of sandwiches. I, I'd say unequivocally just the lo- Clayton's the, psyche. Okay, the uh, yes. unequivocally the lowest rung of sandwich is definitely the airport sandwich. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, I mean, yes. Now, if I wow. was like, it's, it's, I, a, it's not. Oh, I swing by LaGuardia and buy a ticket. Go in, get a sandwich, <laughs> just hang out, <laughs> hang out in the lounge and leave. Then we got some serious problems. That, that's going to be your new. Yeah. Then we bring in the real professional. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Clayton, it's great catching up with you about sandwiches. Thank you, guys. This is Taste is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.